everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of February 7th, 2023. Interesting week, not a, not a ton of books. Um, Lazarus Planet event continues. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe not. Uh, on a more exciting note, the One Minute War continues in Flash. And we get what feels like the final issue of Monkey Prince, even though there's one issue to go. So overall, I thought it was a decent week, Rocky. What would you think? Well, I, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was okay. And uh, what what surprised me the most, I was um, I sh- actually I, I should clarify that I, I was the majority of the comic books I'm disappointed with, just a slight majority again, if if I want to be technical. But and uh, my favorite book, which I'll get to, which was actually st- Static <laughs> Season Two, is my book of the, is is a you know spoiler alert. It's going to be my pick of the week, uh, Static. Uh, ahead of uh, Lazarus Planet, which I continue to be disappointed with, and uh, I, I I didn't mind Flash. Flash was uh, enjoyable, uh, but it wasn't my favorite. So, but it was a a pleasant surprise with Static with uh, Vede Ayala and the, the art's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, not uh, you know again not bad. But uh, I'm c- going to be curious to hear uh, uh, some of your uh, thoughts as we go through them. Yeah, I mean, I was a bit underwhelmed as well. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, as I mentioned, One Minute War this is part three. It continues in Flash 792, written by Jeremy Adams, pencils by Roger Cruz, inks by Wellington Diaz, colors by Luis Guerrero, letters by Rob Lee. Um, I'll talk about the art first. So the Roger Cruz art, for the most part, has been fantastic. Ever since I saw Cruz's art, uh, I think he came on the scene last year with Robin. Uh, it's been very good. This is not his best work. And while I say that, the art is still very, very good. Uh, I especially like the youthfulness he brings to the art because this issue is mostly Bart Allen impulse and Wally West ace, the the younger of the the two Wally West. Uh, And they actually infiltrate the fraction mothership, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, But one thing I noticed, it's really big panels and it's really, it's kind of in your face art, but in a way that feels more of an animated style. A little bit more simple, a little less on the detail, and not quite as polished as I've seen him uh, before. Which, again, it's fine. His sense of storytelling is still very, very good. It just doesn't come across as dynamic as I've seen his art before, especially in some of those fight scenes that we had in Robin. So I don't know if it's just because there's more here, you know, in terms of characters and uh, aliens and things that aren't as well established. Not exactly sure I can put my finger on it, but I just... I wasn't blown away by the art, but it's still very, very good. The story itself, uh, yeah, as I said, a lot of it takes place inside the Fraction ship between the t- uh, the two heroes here, Impulse and, uh, and Kid Flash. And what they discover is pretty interesting. They attempt to disable the ship by stealing the battery, by stealing its power uh, source. And when they break the battery open, it, there's actually a person in there. So... We know from reading the special that the Fraction derive a lot of their power from the Speed Force itself. So I can only assume that this person that they rescued is, you know, basically a Flash from another world, if you will. Somebody who has access to the Speed Force and in turn they are draining the Speed Force from this person. Uh, They also confront Miss Murder, right? That's her name. Uh, And we find out, as uh, Jeremy mentioned to me, uh, I think it was on Twitter. We do find out how she's able to see and hear with that crazy contraption over her face. 
And the answer is she doesn't. She can't see or hear. She hunts by thought. She experiences the world telepathically. So that's an interesting way to, to answer that question. And it makes sense why she can see and hear and whatnot. Um, you know, it's all done by thought. It, it doesn't help me with the design at all. I still can't, can't stand the design. But at least he took the time to explain it. So I'll give him kudos for that. Um, overall, I f I'm really enjoying this event. There's a sense of menace. There's a sense of, uh, of mystery, curiosity. Even though we've learned a lot about kind of the motivations for the fraction, um, there's still a lot to be learned there uh, just in terms of, you know, will they realize that they've gone too far? You know, initially they were only attacking planets or only harvesting, I'll use that word, only harvesting planets that didn't have other life forms uh, to save their own planet. And then eventually they kind of became corrupted by the, the lifestyle, I guess you could say, that they had managed to establish for their, for their people. And now they kind of see themselves as above everybody else. And that's how they justify what they're doing. So can our heroes... Uh, make them realize the error of their ways, you know, that remains to be seen. And then how how do you fight somebody who manages to use technology to basically turn their entire population into flashes, you know, into people that have access to the speed force and weaponize it. So there are big stakes here. There's big consequences. It's a big event. It feels very worthy of the Flash family, especially the way Jeremy Adams has set it up with this weaponized speed force. So yeah, pretty interesting. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, kudos to Jeremy Adams and the, and the creative team. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. You know, Jeremy Adams, he's the, he's been doing this. I mean, he's pretty much stair handled this entire event himself. And I think he's done a reasonably good job here. I, I, I do think that I wish he would have been given uh, uh, I don't mind Roger Cruz's art. I just think it wasn't even close to what I consider to be uh, a lister, which I, uh, I think Jeremy Adams should have been given uh, just a higher profile artist, to be blunt. Uh, but it works. I mean, it's it's serviceable, and I'm and I'm excited. I'm invested in the story, so I'll give Jeremy Adams that. And uh, so far, I've been enjoying this a lot more better than Lazarus Planet because it's fun, and I enjoy the I enjoy the Flash family. I love the the, the Flash family. I love here Impulse and Wallace West. They got good rapport here. They they want to go and they want to. Uh, they want to steal one of the. They want to steal one of the, uh, some of the vehicles uh, that the fraction are using because they discover that uh, the 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 fraction have created a force field around their headquarters, which is on uh, which is located elsewhere in the city. And the only way to get through the force field that the fraction has set up is by actually u utilizing one of the, their own vehicles, which somehow, for whatever reason, through a probably a technological link to the speed force. They can penetrate the, the headquarters. And uh, just coincidentally, Barry Allen, after, after you know, being consoled by the fact that he's, he's consoling Iris, and Iris is technically dead. I mean, she's dead, but we're all frozen in, there are, everyone's frozen in time, bearing in mind that by this issue, we're probably only in the, probably the 32nd mark, maybe 42nd mark of this one minute war, uh, which leads into, a, again, a minor criticism. I'm not, I don't feel that the conveyance of the fact that this has only taken place in less than a minute, that hasn't been adequately conveyed. This feels like standard time. It, it, because everyone is existing and uh, acting within the speed force, this plays out 
like as a reader, I'm not getting a sense that this is taking place in 60 seconds and I should. And I've said before, I'm not sure how that you could convey that, but this should have been done artistically in some way. It hasn't been. And, and again, I'm, I, I guess I'm maybe nitpicking, but I just, I like the story, but in terms of, do I feel that this is a war taking place in 60 seconds? Hard no, I don't. I don't feel that that's happening that quickly. And I should feel some sense of that, and I don't. But I do feel the stakes nonetheless. I do feel that a lot is at stake, particularly at the end here, when it's when we discovered that these organic conduits that are being uh, have connections to the Speed Force, not only do, do the Fraction want to apprehend them, namely all the Flash me- the members of the Flash family, but they also want to apprehend all the metahumans. M- Miss Murder is is a metahuman that was clearly, uh, essentially, probably obtained on in an world of the dark universe and at the end here it's discovered that superman captain adam and i think that looks like gorilla grod uh is has been sort of uh apprehended and of course they're frozen i guess stasis they're sort of in some sort of speed force stasis because technically you know they're they can't uh they're not they don't have a connection to the speed force and i like the fact that this is that superman himself is also vulnerable because superman doesn't get his speed from the speed force he gets it just because he's a hard hard and fast kryptonian so i like that jeremy adams is aware of that and it plays itself out well here i thought this had humor i thought this had action i i like the fact that miss murder's uh, power set is more telepathy i'm not i'm the dog thing i don't know why she's got two animal creatures i guess she's a hunter I was hoping that her power set would be a little bit more complicated than just telepathy when she hunts with her thoughts because she does seem to have super strength and agility, but does she just have martial artists? Like, what does she have any other powers? And she doesn't. Uh, but, you know, again, it's not bad. I'm having fun, and I'm really curious to see where this goes next. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, he's set up a very, very cool event here, and, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman and the Joker Deadly Duo number four, story and art from Mark Silvestri, colors by Arif Prianto, letters by Troy Petrie. So uh, this is basically one big action-packed issue that all takes place on a train. What are your thoughts here? Uh, this uh, this was actually – I thought this was really action-packed. I felt that this, this had me uh, – this had me glued. I was glued to this comic right from the beginning, right, right to, right to how it was going to end because the the this uh, Donald Sims. It, it ends up that this that the true villain, true that the true villain behind the scenes here is this individual by the name of Donald Sims, who is a uh, was a was a I guess a former billionaire like Bruce Wayne, whose daughter was uh, who's daughter was ultimately killed by the Joker, and there's a flashback showing how that has. Uh, how that has taken place, and uh, sorry here, I'm just uh, I don't know why um, I'm just trying to do two things at once here. In any event, uh, uh, Donald Sim wants to, wants to get revenge on the Joker for what happened to his daughter, and uh, he basically sets up a trap for Batman and the Joker to basically solve. And I love it, it deals with a bullet train of Gotham and and the. And that Donald Sim sets basically traps them, puts them on the train, and he he basically has the train going from uh, traveling at super at a, at, at supersonic speed to uh, Martha Wayne Memorial Station, and before it gets there, they have to unload, they have to get it down to its empty to the weight of the train 
when it's empty. And of course, there's 200 people on the train. How the hell do you get rid of all that weight? And the way Batman does it <laughs> uh, is is actually quite quite interesting. He, he he burns portions. They throw all the furniture out. They try to get rid of all the dead weight. Of course, the only way to really do it is to get rid of the people. And <laughs> ultimately, it is through the combination of Batman's ideas and the Joker's idea in terms of how to get rid of some of the weight off the train that they end up successfully <laughs> getting rid of some of the weight. Unfortunately, that doesn't bode well to some of the passengers, thanks to the Joker's ideas, but it actually worked out quite well. And I really like the way that uh, Mark's writer and artist of Mark Silvestri, uh, the way he tells this story, because he, what happens is the Joker does exactly what you would expect the Joker to do to try to solve the problem of eliminating weight on the train. And the art is fantastic. It feels action-packed. It looks cool. And uh, even uh, uh, there's a scene there with, with Harley Quinn who's talking to uh, Donald Sims, who's who ultimately was shown to have been originally injured by the Joker. The, there's a flashback showing the Joker crash, basically wedding, crashing the wedding of his daughter. And there's a suggestion that this that this uh, particular, uh, that this particular, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's a virus or what it is. It's something that um, there's, it's uh, Donald Sim. He created uh, a, a cure for cancer, uh, but it, but it has powerful regenerative effects that it can ultimately even resurrect dead tissue and bring the dead back to life. That's why we end up with all these dead Joker clones. And there's a suggestion that Donald Sims may very well have resurrected his own daughter from the death, from dead. And it's, um, it's, it's really well, I thought it was really well done. This has played out. This has been an interesting story. It's been well paced. It's, I'm, I'm, in, I'm invested in it. I'm curious to see how it ends. It, it make, gives, it hits all the right high notes. It, it reminds me of the, it reminds me of the nineties and it reminds me of some, some good old fashioned, just hardcore Batman storytelling. I really like the, the portrayal of the heart of Harley Quinn as she's a little bit more cruel than she uh, has been. She's more, Harley Quinn is more apt to think like the Joker. This was this is when Harley was still a genuinely affectionate girlfriend of the Joker, and and I like it. I I, I just straight up enjoy it. And again, I want to give kudos to Mark Silvestri. I love his design of Batman. I love the the black utility belt and the dark black bat bat symbol. I just I, I really like the the color tone and. Uh, just, just all the layouts and and the black and white art that's at the end of the issue. It, it, it's, it's really, really gorgeous. And I can't, you know, I'm, this is one of those ones where if it nails the landing on this story, I'm very, very particular when I buy hardcovers. But if he nails the landing on this story, I might pick up the hardcover on this. So, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, th this series shines in its artwork: Sylvester drawing Batman, uh, drawing Gotham City. The texture, the line work, you know, we're used to seeing this sort of cross-hatching the, the way he draws, uh, and it's gorgeous. Uh, the action scenes, again, they're landing with the right sort of um, sort of emotion. It feels very kinetic, and it just, the color work by Prianto is also excellent. It, it just has that feel, like you said, of a, a classic Batman story. That being said, I'm very impressed with the writing of Silvestri and the pacing, how this plays out. Like you said, the Joker's solution for this is exactly what you would expect. And in, in a way, it's, you know, they Batman and Joker working together, neither, you know, neither by choice, neither really agreeing with what the other does to solve the problem. But ultimately, they, you know, they arrive at the goal. They, they cross the finish line and save most of the people on the train. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, 
I'm really enjoying this. It does have a, uh, very much of a classic Batman feel. Um, it's been a long time coming. Sylvester's been working on this series for a long time, and uh, it's proving to be worth the wait. So, uh, All right, up next, I'm not really going to have much to say about this. Poison Ivy number nine, written by G. Willow Wilson. Art is by Marcio Takara. Arif Prianto does the colors. Letters are by Hassan Atzman Elhau. Uh, this is an issue that's for all the Harley Ivy ship fans. Um, Harley shows up where Ivy's, you know, kind of hanging out in Seattle, and they spend some time together. They end up parting ways with uh, Harley telling Ivy she needs to come home, and, and Ivy considering it, um, but. Not much really happens in this issue other than Harley and Ivy hang out a lot. They kiss a lot. They're intimate in other ways. It's hinted at. Um, so, you know, I I don't have a problem with Harley and Ivy together, but it's not something I really care to read about. It's it's whatever, you know. Um, it would be no different if it was, you know, Harley and some guy. I just This is a, an issue that celebrates her relationship with some other person. Ivy's relationship with some other person or Harley's relationship with some other other person, depending on your perspective. Um, but other than that, yeah, not much happens. And I, it doesn't matter to me if Ivy and Harley are together. So I, I didn't really get much out of this. This doesn't really advance the, the narrative of, of who Ivy is and, and what she's doing other than high, uh, other than Harley giving some insights into Ivy and her you know, her power levels may not be reduced as she thinks they are. It's all a matter of perspective. So anyway, maybe you got more out of this than I did, but uh, in my mind, this was kind of a, I don't want to say a throwaway issue, but it wasn't crucial to the overall story of Poison Ivy, at least for me. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't get all that much out of this issue anyway, but I, there's a couple of things that need to be said here. And I was going to be interested to hear your thoughts on because uh, you know, looking at the sale charts, I just uh, I looked at the sale charts, the top 300 for January, and even at the sale charts. So since uh, Poison Ivy has been a sales has been a surprising sales, uh, pleasant surprise for DC. It's not you know, and and it's uh, it's actually been doing reasonably well. I mean, up until this latest, uh, up until I issue eight that came out in January. Ranked at issue uh, Poison Ivy ranked number forty eight, which means it's it sells between uh, thirty to fifty thousand copies, and uh, and Harley Quinn ranked number ninety four, uh, selling between eighteen and twenty four thousand copies. So Poison Ivy is essentially at, by issue not eight here. She's essentially doubling the sales of Harley Quinn, and and her sales have been slowly diminishing from issue one. But Poison Ivy has has been a, a surprising success, I think, or or maybe I'm wrong and people can disagree with me. But it's interesting that you know DC hasn't maybe had they hasn't had more success with Poison Ivy in the past. I'm not sure if this is something new, new or if it's going to be com, uh, continue to be diminishing returns for Poison Ivy because it does seem to me to be that uh, these characters have so much in common, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn, and this issue is all about them. If if you're a Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn shipper, this issue, Poison Ivy number nine is the one to get because this isn't crazy, insane comedy like the cartoon. This is mainstream DC Universe. This entire issue is pretty much Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn 
doing the nasty uh, while uh, Poison Ivy's sort of roommate, you know, complains about the walls being kind of too thin. That's kind of it. And then Harley leaves at the end and then Poison Ivy decides that she's ultimately going to leave and go back to Gotham City. That's really all that happens here uh, with really beautiful art by Marcio Takara. Uh, and so I, I think I said that n- name right. Yeah, Marcio Takara, the, the art. The art's really fantastic. It, it's very well done here. But like you said, not much happens. Uh, I guess my only concern is, is, you know, neither Harley now nor Poison Ivy really feel like villains anymore, even slightly. Are there, Neither one of them are anti-heroes, but maybe Poison Ivy kind of is, but she's certain, starting to lean more and more into the hero category, I think. And I don't, I'm not really sure. I'd really like to know what exactly are DC plans for these for these two? I mean, they, they have so much in common. They're, they're both mentally ill. They both deal with it in, both in strange ways. They, they both have diametrically different iterations of their own character. They've both been villains, anti-heroes and heroes. They've... Uh, they have a lot in common and they happen to be lovers now. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like when one's normal, one's a hero, one's a villain, one's a villain, one's an anti-hero. It's, and now they happen to coincide to be in the same mental space at the same time. So it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure if DC, if, if, if there's ever really a plan for these two or individually, but it's having these two together like this, I feel a little bit sorry for Stephanie uh, Phillips because how many issues did she go through with Harley and she was not allowed, allowed to use have Poison Ivy in the Harley Quinn series and here and here at issue at issue nine uh, because of the way things story telling has gone editorially for whatever reason uh, writer Jay Willow Wilson can can use Harley for an issue like this because this issue I think is going to sell very well and I think a lot of people are going to be flying to the comic shops to pick this issue up because this is pretty much one long intimate scene you know may not it's not overtly necessarily like obviously sexual but it's there's a lot of the sort of the cute and the cuteness and the dialogue and the expressions of love between these two so it's a very interesting situation i think yeah again it's very much fan service for all those that have missed having harley and ivy together but i think when you put them together uh you're very limited in the stories that you can tell you know that and i think editorially DC wants to do other things with Harley and Ivy that kind of necessitate them being apart. And that's what we're seeing. But this issue is definitely fan service, bringing them back together, which is great for those that uh, enjoy that sort of thing. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Batman 132 from writer Chip Zdarsky, Mike Hawthorne on pencils, his longtime collaborator, Adriano Di Benedetto on inks, Tameo Mori on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. And then there's the backup, um, with Tim Drake and Toy Man, that's also written by Zadarsky. That one has art by Miguel Mendoca, with colors by Roman Stevens and letters by Clayton Cal as, as well. We saw last issue, uh, well, a couple issues ago, a failsafe shot Batman with this multiversal gun that Toy Man had somehow, that I think uh, has some sort of Kryptonian technology in it. It sent Batman to this world that we got our first glimpse of last issue. It's a world where Venom is very much a part of the everyday life, and we learn a lot more about Gotham City in this version. Um, Venom-enhanced police. This Gotham has been sort of abandoned, much like in the um, was it No Man's Land storyline. 
this Gotham City's sort of been abandoned, walled off from the rest of the United States. Um, and Arkham Asylum, of all things, is is sort of the the power, uh, the one that calls the shots. And uh, we even find out that they they pump this uh, substance into the air called crane brain gas that makes you hallucinate and it gives the uh, Arkham City police more of a reason, you know, to uh, to take you in if they want. Oh, you're seeing things? Oh, you know, we'll, we'll cart you off. So um, this is the world that Bruce Wayne finds himself in. And, and at first it seems like his main focus is to just to get back, to get back to, uh, you know, his reality, his version of Gotham. Um, but as it goes along, as the story goes along and he starts seeing the, the corruption, he starts realizing what it is that the people of this version of Gotham City are facing. Uh, he almost has like a um, an epiphany or uh, Zdarsky's version of Batman's origin where he sees a bat hanging from a telephone line and decides, oh, Gotham, I shall become a bat. So it seems like he's not necessarily going to try to get back. He's, he's going to uh, do what I think is very much second nature to him, and he's going to fight for this version of Gotham City and, and try to set things right before he um, may try to get back home. Uh, but obviously he's he's got limited resources here. Um, he doesn't have his his unlimited wealth. He doesn't have allies, as it were. Uh, you know, he has a few, but they're nowhere near as um, as powerful or as well equipped as you know they might be in his own reality. So, what's going to happen from here? I don't know, but there it feels like there are stakes. It feels like there are consequences, and uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying what Zdarsky is doing. I could have done without the reference to Batman falling from the moon because <laughs> I just, if you guys listen to that review, I just hated that. It was so absolutely ridiculous. Um, thank God this is a lot more grounded, a lot more realistic. Um, yeah, he's yeah, only he's falling, falling from, from <laughs> sorry, <yeah>. go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he's only falling from a building here and saying, I can survive this. I've fallen from the moon. Yeah. Like, come on. You don't remind us of that awful, awful, <laughs> awful story that you told Batman falling from the moon and surviving one of the worst things that I've ever read in a comic ever. But, uh, but anyway, I, I, I'm enjoying this. The Mike Hawthorne art. If you're at all familiar with Hawthorne's art, he uses a thicker line, kind of a heavy line weight. Um, and it really kind of suits the, the gravitas of the story here. Um, and kind of the brutality of the, the fight scenes. So I think it works very well. Um, I also really enjoyed when Bruce was, preparing he was putting on this uh, this disguise to go undercover at this gala and he's standing there in front of the mirror and you can see all the scars on his back from all the years of being batman i thought that was uh, a nice touch so anyway uh, i'll talk about the backup in a second but what do you think of the main story uh, i actually i i quite enjoyed this i i enjoyed this i i, I enjoyed how how bruce wayne uh you know, he's, he's got to try to fit into this world and he's doing the best that he can. And he realizes that, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff we've seen before he, he recognized, or he, he's got to recognize 
that this is a Gotham that is has basically been drowned in fear. This is something where he's seen before, and you mentioned it. There's all there's countless storylines in Bat with past Batman stories where Gotham has been taken over by Bane or Joker, or there's No Man's Land, or there's all kinds of nonsense or plagues and what have you. <laughs> and this is no different. But we are, we have to remember when we read as we're reading this issue, and uh, let's not lose sight of the fact that Failsafe sent. Bruce Wayne to this particular earth for a reason. Now we know that Failsafe used Toyman's gun and it's possible that Failsafe didn't know what would happen when he shot uh, Batman with that gun but I have a feeling Failsafe knew exactly what he was doing because I have a theory as to who this red mask is and I'm wondering if this red mask is actually the Bruce Wayne of this earth. My my working theory now as I read this is, you know, this because this starts off, it, it basically has the red mask confront Harry Harvey Dent, who is the judge who we met in an earlier issue that and this this mask is actually uh, seems to have the power to take Venom away because a, a lot of the police in this Gotham City are, are powered up by Venom. Venom, the use of Venom is rampant and it's it's only used. It looks like by hooligans that are working for red mask now maybe failsafe wanted as punishment to batman because bat failsafe thought batman killed so follow me on this if failsafe thought batman killed what better punishment for batman than to send him to a planet where batman is the killer send him to an earth where bruce wayne his equivalent is the killer is the ultimate murderer in gotham and that's the red mask so how's that for a theory maybe i'm completely wrong i don't know um but I'm thinking somebody's behind that red mask. I love the fact that Bruce Wayne here wants to infiltrate the high elite part of the society because the he believes Batman thinks that the equivalent of Bruce Wayne, because Bruce Wayne, he thinks that Bruce Wayne is dead in this world, and maybe he is. I was just telling my theory. But there's this Darwin Halliday, and there, there we don't have an equivalent of a Darwin Halliday on our Earth. But this Darwin Halliday looks an awful lot like the Joker. And uh, I'm, this Darwin ha- Halliday is actually the billionaire playboy, but it's it's actually the Joker because Joker isn't Joker. He's just a millionaire playboy. So that's kind of interesting. He confronts Selena. He confronts Punchline, uh, <laughs> who goes by a different name and uh, goes by the name of Crimson. And then he confronts Killer Croc. And he ultimately ends up being, you know, having to flee the 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 tower in, in and he manages to escape and like and he makes the comment about oh i can yeah, i jump from the moon i can survive or fall from a skyscraper no big deal and and ultimately uh you know it 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 leads with uh, it ends with batman ma- making making a concerted vow once again in this world to become batman again and batman he he's basically forced to become Batman to stop uh, the, the the crime of this new Earth. But um, I I'm I'm intrigued. Like, uh, like you know, a lot of people th- this Zardaski's come under criticism for this storyline in terms of how it how it really deviated with this multiversal jump to this other Earth. But I I kind of enjoy what he's doing here, and I'm I'm enjoying this journey so far. And uh, the, I think there's some and regarding the 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 backup regarding Toyman and the where. And the use of that gun that was used to shoot that failsafe used to kill Batman, I think it's very interesting. Some interesting revelations uh, in the backup as well, which I'll I'll let you uh, talk about. Yeah, Red Mask Bruce Wayne. I I thought of that as well. You very you may very well be correct. Uh, everybody seems to think this 
the Bruce Wayne of this world is dead. Um, but you know, Selena's not yeah. too surprised to see Bruce Wayne and assumes it's the Bruce Wayne of this world, not Bruce Wayne of a different world. Mm -hmm. um, and that may explain why this red mask is telling Judge Harvey Dent, bring me Bruce Wayne. You know, he wants to confront somebody. Obviously, this would be a very twisted and perverted version of Bruce Wayne. I hope it's not. Sure. Honestly, I hope it's somebody else. Um, I think it would work better, but, you know, I guess we'll see. If there's anything we know from DC editorial, we don't. We, they can never give us enough Batman. And you, they can never give us enough versions of Bruce Wayne. About, I mean, Batman who laughs and, you know, all that crap. So anyway, uh, the backup, as you mentioned, uh, we have Tim Drake. He uh, enlists the aid of Mr. Terrific. He gets some sort of multiversal suit that has like a homing beacon in it or something where uh, Mr. Terrific will be able to track him through the multiverse and, and pull him back home. Um, and so he gets sent to another part of the multiverse. Is it where Bruce Wayne is? Is it the reality? We don't know. But what we do know is it is wherever the toy man has gone with this gun. Um, so Zdarsky is definitely leveling up the toy man in terms of the threat level, I guess you would say. And, and what exactly the toy man's end goal is, I don't know. He seems to want to create an army of mindless slaves. Never saw the toy man as somebody that wanted that before. So I guess we'll see. Um, the art is pretty solid, but I do wish it's not, I mean, Miguel Mendoca art is absolutely fantastic. Most of the time. Uh, when we had uh, justice league last ride, you and I both raved about how good the art was. And the only thing different is who his colorist is here. So I think the color work is not doing this line work any favors. Um, cause it's, it's, I expect better from Miguel. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't jump off the page. It doesn't look as polished as we've seen it in the past. Um, so the art's still very, very good, but I, like, I was surprised when I got to the end and I'm like, wait, this is Miguel's work. And I went and look, had to look at it again. And I was able to recognize it as Miguel's work, but only, you know, after looking at it twice. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what else it could be other than the, you know, the colors are very muted. Um, they, they're a bit muddy. So uh, it's not my favorite. There are particular panels here or there that I think work very well. Uh, the panel where Tim finds these prisoners that um, Toy Man has, has yet to convert into mindless automatons, I guess. Uh, that panel's done very, very well. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think the color works doing this any favors, but an intriguing story nonetheless. Um, great to see Tim Drake shining in a, in a way that he doesn't in his regular series. So what do you think? Uh, well, I, I will say that thanks to artist Miguel Mendoza or Mendoca, uh, he, uh, for the first time, I, I actually think, uh, Bernard, Tim Drake's boyfriend actually looks, he, he looks, he's drawn and he actually looks like he's male. Uh, it, it's been a while since I looked at Bernard and thought he was a, you know, definitely a man. Uh, and that's a big, because that's just the way Tim Drake Robin under Riley Rosmo, I, I 
I, I just I, the, the art is so drastically different. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but I, I I like the respect given to Tim Drake and uh, Bernard here. I think they're the relation. It looks like a healthy, functional relationship, and uh, better than the one that's being portrayed. I, I think in Tim Drake Robin, it just it just looks it looks visually better as well. So uh, I like that. And now I I also like the. Uh, uh, I like the fact the flashback with Super John Kent when he initially confronts Toy Man. Toy Man shot people with these guns and they either were evaporated, they seemed to be incinerated, or they were turned into like essentially uh, like like action figures of some kind. And now it looks like Toy Man did in fact transport all these people that he shot into this other world. And it makes me wonder if maybe Toy Man was creating his own world where he could have his own little hero clicks or action figures and manipulate them all he wanted. And it's interesting that when Tim Drake gets to this other world, Toy Man is right there, but it, he doesn't appear to be, like you said, he doesn't appear to be in Gotham. And so is this a, the same world? Is it different? Why Why weren't they on Gotham? And why isn't Toy Man in Gotham City, the same place that uh, Bruce Wayne was? What did Failsafe do differently with the weapon? Did he change the settings? Did he manipulate it? It's hard to say, but it definitely has me intrigued. And I thought, you know, this this whole issue, I think the whole storyline is really starting to come together. And I really enjoy how the backup sort of enhances, gives you enough, it, it fills in the, the gaps of the main story as well with Tim Drake slowly figuring out how to get to Batman. Because the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Batman has been very well handle, handled by Sardaski, in my opinion. So overall, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm impressed. And uh, yeah, hi, you know, you know, it's good to see Bernard looking so damn good. Yeah, Bernard does look pretty good. You're right. Uh, all right. Up next, The Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing, issue number five. This is from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Uh, Carmine Di Gian Domenico is the artist. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Tam, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, we find out that one of the Jokers who shows up here was hired by the Crime Lord Joker to... Uh, impersonate him basically it's Clayface. he's impersonating the joker the crime lord joker and confronting the hostage mutilated now bald joker um if that sounds confusing that's only because it is it's been confusing from the start with all these different jokers we still don't know what's going on we still don't know why does this tie into um the three Jokers from Jeff Johns. It seems to, especially because we have Red Hood here hunting the Jokers for you know obvious reasons. They have history there. Um, the art by Carmine. You know, I've said a lot of times that his art works best on Flash because it's so kinetic and sort of wild. Um, but as crazy and out there as this story is, um, the art is sort of crazy and out there as well. So I guess it kind of works on that level. Um, but I. I I feel like this is a series where it's all going to come down to the last issue. It's all going to come down to how it wraps up. If Rosenberg nails the landing and can make this all make sense, can look back on the series and go, yeah, okay, that was well worth the, this kind of wild and zany ride. If it ends where things are still ambiguous and up in the air and we don't really get any answers, it, I'm going to feel like, why? what did I read and why did I read it? Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I feel about the three Jokers storyline, even though it has, you know, fantastic art from Jason Fabok um, and, you know, written by Jeff Johns, who I'm a big fan of, I, you know, ultimately that was one of the biggest disappointments of 
of 2020 or 2021, whenever it came out. Um, cause I had anticipated it for so long. Maybe that's on me for, you know, building it up in my mind. Um, so I, I have faith in Matthew Rosenberg. I'm a fan of Matthew Rosenberg. Um, I'm not a fan of the Joker. So for me to be this invested is a good thing. I just hope that it lands. And I'll say one other thing. I'll toss it over to you, Rocky. Anybody who read the previous Joker title, the one that was just the Joker from James <laughs> Tynan, and was disappointed that that was actually a Jim Gordon story, I hope you're reading this because this is nothing but a Joker story. There's no other main character. <laughs> Everybody else is is a small supporting character. Even even Red Hood uh, shows up here. You know, he's hunting the Joker. He's kind of the um, this issue anyway, the the B storyline, the subplot that's sort of driving the story, or is sort of our our POV character, and, and you know, moving the story along, um, bringing in Gotham City Police Department, and, and sort of tying things together. But he's a distant second to the actual Joker. So if you like Joker, yeah, you definitely should be reading this. And again, kudos to Matthew Rosenberg for me to be this invested in a Joker story. Because, man, the, the character just needs to go away for a long, long time. So, oh, or, what are your thoughts? Or maybe, maybe this, we ha the Joker has, the real Joker has not actually been in this story at all. He shows up at the end in this issue, the real Joker, on vacation somewhere. And uh, he was at the very beginning of the story. He was at uh, where he took hostages and one of the hostages was shot in the head. And that, that hostage that was shot in the head ended up thinking he was the Joker. And we thought that was the fake Joker. And we believe he is the fake Joker. And then the other Joker, the real Joker, then must have went on vacation and then had Clayface replace him. Uh, because at the end of this issue, Jason Todd ends up killing who he thinks is the Joker, but it's only Clayface, and he ends up getting arrested. And there's a whole... Things are really sort of drawn out here. You know, on the surface, there's a lot of... I thought there's a lot of decompression in this issue. Uh, I thought there was a like a useless scenes between Jason Todd talking to Spoiler, with Spoiler just telling Jason Todd that Batman doesn't want you here, you should leave. Totally pointless conversation. Jason Todd, Matthew Rosenberg playing with some tropes that Jason Todd wants to really get, you know, Jason Todd has a Joker obsession and wants to kill the Joker. Like, really? Again? Isn't he over that already? I mean, that's been done to death. But regardless, the, the fun in this no, issue... No pun it, intended, right? Yeah, exactly. The fun in this issue, though, is the dialogue between the two Jokers. And I thought that this this was the real Joker and the fake Joker, and I, I was trying to figure out who was the fake one. And I got to be honest with you, I was I was surprised when one of them was Clayface. Maybe some people could have guessed that, but I was really surprised uh, because both the Jokers here seem to get one up on each other. You know, uh, they, they met, and the one Joker was hit, hit himself in the in a in a in sort of a, a jail in a warehouse and that the jailhouse, jail the warehouse was rigged. Uh, he started a fire and then the other Joker had some acid and acid in his gun and thought it was water. And then they, they had the, their verbal repertoire, their verbal sparring back and forth with some uh, bad humor, bad jokes, typical what you expect from the Joker. Only for us to discover at the end that, you know, uh, the, the, the real Joker comes back to, you know, to, finish off the what you think is the fake and it ends up being it's actually Clayface and then the other Joker ends up being you think hit by a train 
And Clayface reports that to the real Joker, who's apparently on vacation. So, so we've we've been dealing with two Jokers. One's Clayface, one's fake, and the real Joker's on vacation. So, your initial inclination in thinking that maybe there's three Jokers, Jace, you weren't wrong. Although, although it's not the three Jokers from the Jeff Johns run, but <laughs> I don't think. But in any event, if there's a lot of moving parts here, but oddly enough, goddamn, if I'm I was critical of this early on. The second issue I really didn't like. And this is this is one of those series that's kind of been growing on me like a fungus. I, 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 I You know, it's kind of irritating to me. But at the same time, I, I like scratching it, you know, because it itches. And so, um, yeah, I, I find myself slowly intrigued as to how the hell this is going to end. And you, you hit the nail on the head. If Rosenberg can nail this landing, because he doesn't always nail some landings well, but... We've we've enjoyed a, a, most of his runs. We've we've enjoyed and his his my favorite run of his continues to be the his uh, grifter six issue run in the first six issues of Batman Urban Legends, the Long Con. That still remains my favorite. But uh, if he nails a landing on this, I'll be pleasantly surprised. And uh, you, but I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for him. Yeah, hundred percent. The backup is uh, a Giganta story with uh, the Joker wanting to date Giganta. It, it's actually my favorite <laughs> we've had of the backup so far. Um, but you know, like all, they all do this, it really gets weird and goes off the rails with the Joker having these little boils on his face where little mini jokers erupt out of him, And <laughs> Gigantes is as disgusted as we are watching it and walks away f- for her date with uh, the demon. So yeah, <laughs> you're, I mean, it's, you're... <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it's as ludicrous as it sounds, but I don't know. I, I kind of, this was a Joker that felt like more normal to me than the most of these backups where it's been just absolute insanity. But I, you know, I can relate to a guy who has a crush on a girl and wants to go out with her. So uh, I thought it was kind of humanizing in a way. Yeah. You know, the, the, the unifying factor of the backup appears to be almost like a silver age Joker looking for a date. He's been wooing Zatanna power girl, now Giganta. And he's, and, and 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 I think it was Batgirl's one of them too. It's really odd, and and isn't it interesting that the I think the last issue was you and I breezed over the the one where the Joker got pregnant. We we actually didn't even give it much of a review. If you recall, you and I sort of breezed over. We barely mentioned it. You and I we we barely gave ten words to it between the two of us, and then it explodes on the internet. And I'm thinking to myself, of all the things that you know, you and I talk ad nauseum about the issue, and we 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 breeze over the backup, and everybody's talking about the backup. I just I just <laughs> yeah, it's like really ludicrous. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, that's yeah, how it anyway, works. Let's, let's move on uh, to your book of the week, I guess. Static Shadows of Dakota, issue number one. This is basically the second season of Static uh, from Milestone Returns. Heroes and Myths, it's entitled, written by Nicholas Draper Ivy and Vita Ayala. Art by Nicholas Draper Ivy, letters by Anne Rule Design. Um, and for those not familiar don't realize nicholas draper ivy came on as a co-artist for the first season of static about halfway halfway through or a few issues in um and now he's joining joining with vita ayala they were the uh writer for the first um for the first season so they've got a co-writer here on this one so yeah give us your thoughts what did you love about it well, first of all, uh, first of all, the art is absolutely fantastic. It's hands down the best art of any comic book this week from DC. Just 
absolutely fantastic, in my opinion. Uh, Nicholas Draper-Ivy is both the co-writer and the artist, and boy, does it show. I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's because uh, there's something that for writers that are that also are doing the art, maybe that there's just an advantage that they have because they have a, a greater visualization of how they want to portray the scenes here. But I'm, I'm telling you, man, this is, first thing I want to give a compliment to is all the covers, all the alternate covers look fantastic. They look fantastic. They look really, really good. But cover A is the best. Looks absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, with uh, Virgil uh, Hawkins, i.e. Uh, aka static riding on a in a surfboard of lightning it just absolutely it looks amazing the way that the way that uh nicholas draper ivy conveys lightning uh anybody who draws shazam moving forward should take note or black adam because it's absolutely amazing also uh, I, I love that we, we almost have sort of like a who's who page previously in Static. It explains and gives a nice synopsis of what happened in season one. It's so refreshing to see that. And it explains it so succinctly. Basically, we've got a protest, a, a teenage protest uh, against... Uh, it's unimportant. Uh, tear gas is used by a corporation. The tear gas is an experimental gas. It gives various teenagers involved in the protest superpowers. Some of them die, some of them don't. And the first basically se first season of Static involved basically uh, Virgil Hawkins and his friends uh, essentially defeating a black a black ops operation, a black side operation of the government trying to take control uh, of all the, the the what they call the Big Bang Babies or the Bang Babies from that protest who have developed meta powers. This is sort of like, this is sort of like X-Men meets the hood. That's what I like about it. This is in Dakota city. Uh, and this takes place in, in the milestone universe. Obviously it's not in the mainstream DC universe. And it, to me, it, this is like dealing, this is, uh, it's like dealing with the mutants. And in fact, there's even one page where Virgil Hawkins, he's downtown, he's befriending a, a homeless person and he's actually wearing a cap that has an X on it. I, I can't help but think that's a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a hint that it's similar to the X-Men in many ways. These are, these are kids with developing powers. They're afraid of their powers. They're not sure how to control them. And in fact, uh, there are civilian terrorist groups. There's a civilian terrorist group that's out to get and kill these bang babies, as they're calling them, these young kids who have developed these powers from the protest. And uh, one of them loses control in this issue, and, and it causes an explosion. And I'm telling you, the, the scene of the explosion looks absolutely amazing. It looks so real, uh, just uh, just uh, how it's artistically rendered, and the and the just the shading and the, and the coloring. It just looks it looks impactful, and 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 through the mist and through the through all the through all the smoke and the debris comes these uh, very intimidating looking terrorists who uh, who are basically out to kill bang bang babies and thank God static arrives on the scene it looks absolutely this is an action packed issue I love this and the it's a straightforward plot but at the same time you can feel the stakes you know that he's there not only to protect the go to city but to protect his fellow friends many of which some of which he probably doesn't even know have developed powers because of the the gas that was leaked by uh, Alvaro Industries in the in the first season of this uh, story so well done I 
like I, I'm really enjoying this. And and again, the the I would love to own some pages uh, on this because the art, oh man, there's there's one page that looks amazing, which shows him riding on a surfboard of lightning. He's carrying a young girl in his arms, and and meanwhile the terrorist has taken aim at him. It looks absolutely incredible, and you know, and he throws a car at him, and it's just this is <laughs> this is epic. These are epic scenes, and I really thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I wish, I wish this was getting more attention. This was, um, I, I almost feel bad to say I was surprised by how good this was because I don't think that Vita Ayala in that f- entire first season had an issue as good as this opening issue. So whatever she's doing, whatever she's learning, I hope it keeps up. And her collaboration uh, with uh, the artist and her, her co-writer here, again, uh, Nicholas Draper, Ivy, and v- Vita Ayala, kudos to them. They did, they did an amazing job. And it ends, we, we got two villains on the scene here. We got a dark villain who has an agenda that wants to get all the bang, these bang babies, these kids with powers. And we also have a civilian terrorist group that wants to wipe them out. So it's got echoes of the X-Men, but it feels unique and fresh to me. It feels different. And I really enjoy it because quite frankly, I can't get into the X-Men because I'm, I'm too goddamn confused when I read the X-Men. And so this is perfect. If you're DC and you like the X-Men, but it, you find X-Men a little bit too convoluted, come over and check out Static. So, Yeah. The, uh, remember, Vita is non-binary, so they... Uh, they. I, I apologize yeah, to Vita. I, yeah, I know you always Sorry, I've done that before. I, I, it's yeah, not my yeah. first mistake the time I've made that mistake. Yeah. I would love to have some pages of this as well. I echo your sentiments about the art. However, I doubt there are pages because I'm pretty sure Nicholas Draper Ivy is working digitally uh, here. Fair enough. Uh, which is part of why it works so well uh, because it's just, it portrays the action. And the whole thing just has this sense of like being really cool and really fast moving. Um, and again, it, it's, it kind of suits the tone of the story that these two creators are telling. It also captures the feel of Static's powers very, very well, right? Like it's it's very kind of fast moving and on the edge of being out of control. And that's sort of what the, the art is like. So, uh, yeah, I don't have a lot more to add to that because you, you summed it up very, very well. Uh, I echo your sentiments about the covers, uh, although I think the Dan Hip cover is probably my favorite. I'm not as big of a Dan Hip, yeah, that one there, uh, fan as some people are. Uh, but it, I don't know, that one just is a lot of fun. Um, and I also agree with you a hundred percent about the recap page. It was, uh, so it was done so well and yeah, we, we read it all, but if somebody, you know, the first season, but if somebody asked me to, um, to sum it up, it's not so recent in my mind that I could have summed it up as well as this page did. So, uh, even having read the first season, I, you know, I read this page was like, oh yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, and was able to dive right in, um, and really get a lot out of this. So I, I do enjoy or did enjoy, and uh, I think it's purposeful and I think it's um, a nice change. Very welcome. The Virgil Hawkins, the static that we're getting in the first issue of this season, it does seem like there's a, a maturity there, right? Between the end of last with everything you went through in the first season and the, the last uh, issue of season one and this issue, he's grown, he's matured a little bit more of a leader, more, you know, more confident, more take charge. Um, and I enjoy that, right? It's, it's completely believable. Um, some time has passed. Um, and it definitely seems like he's, he still has a lot to learn. Don't get me wrong. 
And these two creators are going to take them on that journey because even after the events of this particular issue, you know, he's starting to, to realize the stakes are higher than, than maybe even he realized before, even with that new level of maturity. So he's definitely coming into his own and, uh, it's interesting. an interesting character, right? Like he's been around for over 30 years. Yeah. 92, I think, was when the Milestone Universe debuted the first time around. But he's not a character that's necessarily grown or been aged up, if you know what I mean. Look at um, the characters of Young Justice, right? Like Rocky and I have talked about them in recent time and how they're sort of the red-headed stepchildren of the DC Universe. Nobody knows what to do with them. <laughs> They've sort of been replaced again, right? Like if you look at Tim Drake, Robin... Now you have Damian Wayne. There's another generation, but the older generations are still there, and DC doesn't seem to know what to do with them. Static hasn't suffered from that, um, but in a way, he's suffered, he suffered from stagnation. The Milestone characters weren't around for a long time. So, you know, they had the opportunity to tell stories and, and you know, evolve them. Like, could we see, a, you know, a... a of Virgil Hawkins that eventually graduates from high school and moves on to college and, you know, like lives his life, grows up, so to speak. Um, I, I'm more able to picture that now with this change, this growth from season one to season two, even in only one issue. So it's something interesting to, th to think about at least. Uh, all right. Yeah. Up next, we have Gotham city year one issue number five. Written by Tom King, pencils are by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Jordi Belair. Um, some revelations here that may not be uh, may not be welcome for fans of of the Wayne family, as it were. Uh, basically, we're told here by King that um, that Richard Wayne wanted he he squandered the Wayne fortune. Apparently he has no money. It's, it all comes from his wife um, and he doesn't have any freedom. He feels like to be able to do what he wants to do. And he basically planned the kidnapping so he could have the ransom for his own daughter and then left everything to be pinned on Queenie when things went wrong. Um, and so that's what we're told, but that may not necessarily be the truth. It may have been Constance Wayne who was behind everything in the first place because Richard basically not smart enough to plan anything. And, uh, you know, she was, you know, sort of manipulating him all along because she knows that all he does is go out and he's only good for two things. We're told Richard Wayne's only good for two things, womanizing, you know, going out there and, um, and having flings and wasting money. So who's actually behind the kidnapping? Uh, we're not exactly sure. We just know Queenie's, being set up to take the fall for it. Uh, but regardless of that, the Wayne family itself, whether it's Constance, whether it's Richard Wayne, no matter what, any way you slice it, uh, they don't come across as very looking very good. You know, <laughs> Gotham City royalty, they come across as scumbags, you know, like really their, their own daughter, their own yeah. daughter, their own baby yeah. girl. Um, and so that, yeah, I could see that rubbing some people the wrong way. Um, <laughs> And, you know, more more fuel for the fire of the people that don't like Tom King. How dare you? <laughs> uh, and, and it adds some interesting context to, you know, the frame, the framing story of Slam Bradley on his uh, hospital bed, deathbed, whatever, you know, telling this story to, to uh, Bruce Wayne, telling the story to Batman. So 
Yeah, this is this is a dirty story. This is crime. This is what crime noir is. And regardless of whether you, you know, like the fact that Tom uh, Tom King is disparaging the Wayne family name in this uh, in this fictional story, I'll remind everybody. Um, you know, whether that bothers you or not, this is crime noir. This is what crime noir is. This is yeah. this is the style of storytelling that crime noir is. So I, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I really enjoyed that Jeff Spokes cover, too, where um, Slam Bradley's kind of walking in the rain. Uh, I thought that cover was fantastic. So no, anyway, fantastic. what were your thoughts? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Tony, Tony, Tony Shastine does that cover so yeah yeah the, the the alternate covers here are fantastic cover a is obviously in the phil hester looks great i i don't know and uh tony shahas shastin is the cover b and then cover c is i'm not sure who does yeah, cover yeah. c that one's jeff spoke that one's got jeff, jeff spoke yeah that's that they're all really good so it's um i gotta tell you i, I i've been enjoying this series and i you know, surprise, surprise, I really like how Tom King does crime noir here. Look, the bottom line is that, uh, yeah, this is Tom King. Once again, he's taking characters that maybe you think you know, and maybe he's, he, he uh, uh, there's some there's some darkness and, and gloom and doom here, uh, but damn, it is Gotham City, and it fits. And uh, it, this is an enjoyable story. I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. Now, if you're, um, I'm a fan of Batman. And I don't like his Batman, but I like the way he's portraying their grand his grandparents. <laughs> Richard and Constance, both of them are are very bad Waynes. They're very, very they're not very good parents. Uh, they 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 don't really love each other, and they're manipulative. And their daughter Helena is kidnapped. It's all planned by Richard Wayne. Uh, but then it looks like some revelations in this issue. It looks like it might Helena Wayne herself might be the mastermind behind everything. This is a Richard Wayne who has pissed away his fortune, drank it away, partied it away. But it's Constance, uh, Constance Wayne's, the, the fortune that she inherited from her family is what has kept the, the illusion that the Wayne still, that Richard Wayne still has his power, still has his affluence. And that, uh, that's something that Richard Wayne is painfully aware of. And Queenie, the, uh, the, the African American character who Richard Wayne has an affair with, who basically he whispers sweet nothings in her ear. He basically hires her to help coordinate the the high, the, the f fabricate the the heist and and uh, sort of plan the whole thing. It looks as if while that was going on, Queenie was the one she did end up stealing the ransom money. But then it it looks as if perhaps it's hinted at the end that it was in fact Constance Wayne that went and actually kidnapped her own daughter from Queenie's possession because Queenie did have full intention and it looks like Richard and Queenie had full intention of returning of in fact returning the child because it was all a big scheme for Richard Wayne to get money essentially from his wife because the money would could only come from Constance because Richard Wayne had no money so the only way to get money from his wife was to kidnap their daughter because the only one who could afford to pay the ransom was Constance Wayne his wife whom he clearly stopped loving quite some time ago. And I continue, and, and it's worth noting that, you know, this takes place in the 1960s. And Tom King recently said in an interview, I believe it might even have been years uh, when you interviewed him, that uh, this is, when Tom King wrote, wrote this, he loves writing this, he loves writing crime noir. He's thinking of the 1940s, even though this story takes place in the 1960s. And if this story takes place in the 1960s, 
Batman, okay, well, Batman, Bruce Wayne was likely born, I, I, I guess, I know this doesn't take place in continuity, but in theory, Batman could be could be the next child born to Constance and Richard Wayne, unless they're the grandparents, but it's, Slam Bradley slept with Constance Wayne, and if she's pregnant, it's theoretically possible that Slam Bradley could be the father of Bruce Wayne, the real father of Bruce Wayne, <laughs> or the real grandfather of Bruce Wayne, depending on when Batman is born, and you could, you know, argue that nonsense all you want. But anyways, it's kind of intriguing. I like thinking about it. And if, you, if, you're, if you're someone who doesn't like Tom King, you're just going to dismiss it anyway. But uh, I enjoy good storytelling. This is good storytelling. And uh, this is, uh, this is I, I think, just as interesting as... Um, this is just as interesting as the Lindbergh kidnapping. It even has a little bit more uh, thrown in there. So uh, I, I, for one, I don't mind when Tom King draws inspiration from other stories and other world events and other uh, other areas of literature, as long as he tells a good story. And he's, he's done that here. And uh, I think that... Uh, you know, I think, you know, I know that he loves, uh, I love Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' uh, work. And I think uh, I could definitely get behind Tom King, you know, continuing to write this kind of story of Gotham Year One moving forward. So uh, I'm really curious to see how this all wraps up at the end and the extent to which uh, Constance Wayne may have been involved in the death of her own daughter. So it's a very tragic story, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this is the story of Gotham City you know, going from that pillar of shining light to the Gotham city we know. And it, it's certainly doing that, right? Like the, in the background, there's, there's riots, right? With the baby being found, people are burning Gotham city to the ground, uh, looting and, you know, rioting and whatnot. It's far cry from the, you know, ham fisted fascist police department that held up Gotham as this, you know, shining light as beacon upon the hill. So it, it, it King is doing what he set out to do in terms of telling us how we, Gotham City went from being, you know, very light and bright, sort of like Metropolis, to, you know, the dark Gothic city that we expect it to be. So, uh, all right, up next, they don't have a consolidated credits page, so I'm going to have to flip through really fast. Uh, Lazarus Planet, Next Evolution, Issue 1. Another one of the anthologies for Lazarus Planet. Uh, the first story is called The Vigil. See No Evil. Ram V is the writer. Lalette Kumar Sharma is the artist. Rain Barreto on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. <coughs> Gives us a new team called The Vigil. We also see Red Hood show up in this story. Second story stars Flatline. Uh, and it is written. Let me get to the last page here with the credits. Uh, Flatline uh, Elevation, written by Brandon T. Snyder. Art is by Laura Braga. Colors by Matt Herms. Letters by Troy Petrie. The third story has Deadeye, Amanda Waller's nephew, who seems like a cross between Deadshot and, I don't know, Mr. Bones or something. Uh, that one's written by Chuck Brown. Pencils by Aletha Martinez. Inks by Mark Morales. Colors by Alex Guermez. And letters by Troy Petrie. And then the last story stars Red Canary, written by Delilah S. Dawson. Art and colors by Brant and Stein. And letters are by Troy Petrie. Uh, and I think that's Ted Brant and Roe Stein for art and colors. So, uh, yeah, this. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, uh, what can I say? The, none of the stories are bad. Um, 
I'm curious to learn more about the Vigil, which is a three-person team, um, and what their powers might be. They're very intriguing visually, uh, if nothing else. So uh, we're told to stay tuned this year because more is coming soon from the Vigil, so maybe they're going to get a limited series. Flatline, you know, we've we've seen Flatline before. We kind of know what she's about. What's intriguing here is it, it the story could be giving us the return of Ra's al Ghul. So that may uh, be important down the line. And, you know, last page of that story. Oh, so not the end, we're told. Um, the Deadeye story, I'm not that familiar with Deadeye, but I do like his look visually. But Amanda Waller shows up in the story, so you know how I feel about that. Um, but Deadeye, again, it could be an interesting character. I would like to learn more. Uh, this is the first time seen of him, but he must have been around before. It's not his first appearance or anything. I'm just not familiar with him. Uh, and I do really uh, enjoy the art on that one. Aletha Martinez does a, a fantastic job. The Red Canary, I, I just didn't really care for. I don't care for her as a character. Um, I think we sort of have enough of these bat family type characters. I, I know she's more of a you know Red Canary fan or what have you. And obviously her name is based on Red Canary. But she's in that same vein of you know Clown Hunter where she has no powers. Um she her costume is kind of meh and yet somehow she's out there fighting against these menaces that honestly if you know this were real would kill her in no time flat um it's just not that interesting to me at all um the art's fine the storytelling's fine but it's just not a character i have any interest in in learning any more about so um but ultimately overall other than this just being a preview from more stories to come of these characters in the dawn of dc later this year this has little to nothing to do with lazarus planet and is not needed to be read in any way shape or form to further the story of lazarus planet if you're if you're like oh i want to get the whole lazarus planet story you can still skip this you're missing nothing nothing this feels a little bit like a money grab to be honest throwing lazarus planet uh trade dress on this one shot so um that's about as nice as I can be about it. What do you think, Rocky? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna cushion the blow here because the bottom line here is that this is um, every single one of these characters, all of them, uh, will be written better at some point in the future, as opposed to how they're written now. Because quite frankly, right now they're boring. Uh, Red Canary is a character that I have absolutely no interest in, and she's boring. Her origin is ridiculous. She was, uh, I mean, we, we met her basically in Dark Crisis, and apparently she decided to become a superhero because when she was in the guitar store playing the guitar, somebody came in the guitar store and tried to rob the guitar and tried to rob the store, and she she beat them up with her brown belt, and uh, and she really likes Black Canary, and, and that's her origin. And then, then in the middle, midst of Dark Crisis, she decides to go and fight a hyena in the presence of Black Canary on a school bus. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was going to say I can't make this stuff up. and uh, I can't, it's, but it's in the comic. But it's just absurd. It's just, it's just to, these characters being introduced in these haphazard ways, it just does it such a huge injustice to these char characters. Uh, but they will become more interesting when they're written better. At some point, we will be given a better origin for Red Canary than the absurd one we get now, or she, maybe she'll get be better developed. Because this has CW written all over it. And I mean CW in the worst possible sense that I can say that, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, the Vigil by Ram V. 
I can't believe I'm saying this, but wow, Ram V, this has got to be your worst uh, writing endeavor for DC since you've been to DC. Uh, The Vigil. I've got absolutely no interest in any of these characters. Uh, It's wasted. It's Red Hood hopping around with narration and all Red Hood is talking about how awesome The Vigil is. We learn really nothing about them other than the fact that they're they're stopping some some bad guy using Lazarus resin to build a particle propulsion engine and they give him the, you know, the, 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 the peace symbol, but it doesn't mean peace. It means V for vigil. Um, again, this doesn't really, this isn't a, this isn't an exciting way to introduce these, these characters in my mind, but I mean, I suppose what else are you going to do? Uh, they, they clearly, what DC has done here with Lazarus planet, it is clearly a way that, that they've used these anthologies which are loosely connected to the Lazarus planet. They're only connected by rain. It reminds me of the red skies during the original crisis where we had a crisis, original crisis on infinite earth's crossover, but the only, the only, the only thing related to the crisis in the story was the fact that the skies were red. (laughs) And that was the ongoing criticism. Oh, more red skies here. Oh no, we got, we got, we got Lazarus rain. That's the only connection that these have with that. And I can't help but to be disappointed. Uh, the, The more, the the character that's the most well-developed and the best story, in my opinion, is with Flatline. Flatline, it's really weird. Flatline, I thought, already had the power to talk to the dead. Now she says in this story that uh, that she has a new power and she can talk to the dead. I thought she could talk to the dead anyway. I don't know what her new power is. Also, huge continuity glitch. She fights Ubu, uh, or Abu, or Abu who's Raza Gal henchman. Abu was killed in Detective Comics, but she fights him here. Uh, yeah, I guess it's pretty clear to me that that Detective Comics run by Ram V is so completely out of continuity. Well, <laughs> doing whatever the hell he wants. Well, <laughs> There's so many continuity glitches in that Detective run, it's not even funny. But you no, know, fair enough. It's just it's it's just one of those little irritation things, and I realize you know you you know you you can explain it away, whatever. Maybe this took place in the in the whatever before that the events took place, whatever. But it's just you know, it's just it, it didn't need to be a boo that flatline fights. It could have been anybody because it it's just flatline. The 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 ashes of Razagol are talking to her. The spirit of Razagol is talking to her, and then. Basically, we have an entire wasted issue. Every single page is a waste of time because it all—it just all it is. She ends up talking to the spirit of Razagal, saying that we have much to discuss. So that's it. That's it. And then, and and also oh, not the end. Well, when is it going to be continued to? Like, it's not. It's not. Not all of these stories are continued some at some future point. But but what? And, and because it's not obvious, not even in the solicitations that we're going to be seeing any of this. And the solicitations are three or four months ahead. So are we supposed to remember this? Are people supposed to pick this up and be excited? And if we're supposed to be excited, I really should feel more excited than I am. And that's why I'm so disappointed in, the, in these stories, because none of this hooks me. I'm not curious about any of these characters, quite frankly. Maybe a tad interested about the spirit of Razo Gal coming back because at least Razo Gal is connected to the Lazarus resin. He's connected to the Lazarus pits. So seeing the spirit of Razo Gal is interesting because maybe, but there, there wasn't enough of that connection drawn out in that particular story. But in any event, uh, there was, uh, am I missing something? Ah, uh, yes. We got to talk about, I want to talk about uh, Amanda Waller. For the first time, you know, Amanda Waller is talking to her nephew. Now, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we heard that Amanda Waller had a nephew. 
I've never heard of Deadeye before. This is a first for me. And, and apparently she refers to Deadeye as her, as, as her Argus ghost. So he's been undercover in Argus and she's, he's been secretly working for his aunt, uh, his aunt, Amanda Waller. And he, he was really upset in this issue because Amanda Waller, who he, psychically determines is on earth three so amanda waller's on earth three so is this the amanda waller that's been in the other issues of dc comics but amanda waller's back on earth three or is this the um, earth three amanda waller this is not really clear and you and i read you know you and i should not be confused about that what is amanda waller and she's actually playing chess as she's talking to him which is even more weird uh because one usually when you play chess that's supposed to be symbolic of like chess moves and everything else uh but in any event you know this is just all a glorified way of have introducing us to dead eye uh, another character that, again, might be interesting. And how is he different than Amanda Waller? Well, he exercises compassion and he refuses to kill uh, this character called uh, Amalgam, uh, who uh, <laughs> who's called Everyman. But then at the end of the issue, Everyman changes his name to Amalgam and Deadeye refuses to kill him. And that's really the, uh, that's really the end of that issue. And... Again, I'm not, you know, I guess it's interesting that we have another character. We have the nephew of Amanda Waller, but it's just another character that that, that could pop up in any issue of Suicide Squad uh, once we inevitably get another Suicide Squad issue. So, again, uh, th- these things are so disconnected. When, when the stories here are, are like this, I don't know why we bother. Uh, I'd rather just have a more drawn-out, organically created character than one that's just sort of like puked on the page how i feel this has been so this whole azaris anthology has been one massive disappointment for me pretty much uh it's only the first issue that's any good and at least the omega issue which will end the series you just have to read lazarus planus alpha lazarus planus omega and uh unfortunately it still doesn't end with omega it'll end in monkey prince number 12 but uh we'll get to that eventually but yeah i mean you and I both have been saying all along, none of these anthologies are really necessary. Could have been, could have just been Alpha and Omega. Yeah. Monkey Prince. So speaking of Monkey Prince, we have issue number 11 here, written by Jean Luen Yang. Bernard Chang is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Adriana Lucas on colors for the flashback. Um, and Haning as the artist on the flashback. Janice Chang on letters. Um, I think the most interesting thing for me is the fact that the ultra humanite is monkey prince's grandfather. Um, <laughs> that just, that just opens up so many interesting storylines and really helps root Marcus in the DC universe proper. I feel like when this uh, series first started out, despite the fact that Batman showed up and, you know, each, each issue, we had other co-stars. You know, Aquaman was there for Superman or Supergirl, that sort of thing. He, it did feel a little separate, right? Um, but having him tied in with Ultra Humanite from his very beginnings really does cement him as a, an interesting hero, uh, a part of the DC universe overall. And like I said, um, the fact that the Ultra Humanite knows that Marcus is the Monkey Prince knows his ties to the monkey king ultra humanite being you know very smart even gives superman a run for his money 
Marcus is not in a good place when this issue ends. You know, his his father knows who he is, uh, or grandfather knows who he is, and and even has injected him with some nanites that perhaps can control him if he doesn't go along with what his grandfather wants. So I, that's intriguing. That's intriguing. And again, it, it does it definitely feels like the final issue, but that's only because the final issue, issue twelve, does wrap up the uh, the Lazarus Planet. Um, event as rocky said so yeah i'm enjoying this the art has been solid throughout bernard chang's a very talented artist and um yeah this entire creative team has done a fantastic job of introducing a new character and making him feel pretty important to the dc universe uh, overall they've established him relatively quickly um i wouldn't be surprised to see monkey prince you know really take a foothold in the dcu going forward so kudos to uh, everybody involved here i think they've succeeded with what they set out to do. What are your thoughts? Uh, uh, the storytelling for Monkey Prince has been very well done. And it, this has been one of the most pleasant surprises because, you know, at the beginning, you and I have, we enjoyed Monkey Prince. And, but, at, you know, I, I think both of us, maybe more me than you, but maybe you as well. I was a little bit maybe confused because I, well, I I don't know if you were as familiar. You were a little bit maybe more familiar with the Monkey Prince mythology than I was. Uh, it took me a while to get used to it, but I'm I'm glad I had the patience. And, and frankly, I'm glad that we review, we do review DC Comics because I'm not sure I would have stuck with this series, uh, buying the physical copies as I have, if I didn't read it and review it like I have. And I'm so glad I did because I feel like I've been rewarded. I've been rewarded every issue. And this is something where the story is coming through. And I really like kudos to DC for taking kind of a big risk by making Monkey King and the, the Monkey King mythology a central part of the Lazarus planet and the Batman v. Robin and the, and flowing out of world's finest. It's a, it's, it's essentially a central, it's a centerpiece of that storyline. And it's been very well. And it's interesting then here tying him, I mean, his grandfather being the ultra humanite, the origin here is particularly interesting because it looks like, uh, it looks like Marcus's parents, Winston and Laura, who are themselves sort of like mad scientist couple. And we thought that Marcus was their son, but he's actually an orphan. And he was, Marcus is actually the son of the, of this, of the Sun Wukong Monkey King, who Marcus ends up meeting in the Phantom Zone because his grandfather, the Ultra Humanite, sends him into the Phantom Zone because his grandfather, the Ultra Humanite, way about 10 years ago, uh, or whatever, when Marcus was, was still young, uh, uh, Ultra Humanite has been trying to get the Monkey King out of the Phantom Zone to control the Monkey King and basically rule the world, very naively believing that he could control the Monkey the Monkey King. But his his attempts to do that were thwarted by Superman, uh, by a younger Superman at that time, and it ended with a young infant Marcus being found by uh, Winston and Laura, who they didn't uh, who basically raised the child, and they told the they told the ultra humanite that that they had adopted him and they, they sort of kept that secret and and so it 
it's interesting that the the monkey prince and the monkey king meet each other in the phantom zone and the monkey king doesn't believe that marcus is actually his son that was basically plucked from the phantom zone all those years ago and so it's it's kind of interesting there uh and as you said ultra humanite when he finally gets monkey king out of the phantom zone he wants to he implants him with a compliance device he uh he puts a compliance device on marcus with some nanites to maybe create pain for him if he doesn't do what he says and so that will come into play in future issues so how will the ultra humanites machinations to try to control the monkey king come to come to fruition the monkey king sent uh, the monkey prince marcus back to earth to try to uh, ultimately defeat the uh, the demon nezha as part of his test and this is all sort of coming together and if you're uh, i would encourage people Completely ignore the Lazarus Planet anthologies. Just pick up Lazarus Planet Alpha and and buy Monkey Prince issues 10, 11, and uh, this 10, this issue 11, and issue 12, and get Lazarus Planet Omega. That's what I would recommend because that's five issues. You don't need to get any of the Lazarus Planet anthologies at all. In fact, you might want to avoid them altogether because they, they have nothing to do with the the central thrust of the narrative. But uh, uh, I'm impressed with this and I like the art and I think I think it works. I think it works well, and it, it ends appropriately, saying that this is the end of the beginning. And so, the future looks bright for Monkey King, and uh, I'm I'm a I'm going to be a regular reader of this uh, series moving forward. Oh, actually, it does end on issue twelve, doesn't it? So yeah, but we're going to see more of the Monkey Prince in in this you know later this year. I wouldn't be surprised if you got an ongoing. Would not be surprised by that at yeah. all. Uh, in fact, I almost yeah. expect it at this point. So, yeah, no. For uh, sure. All right, there is one other single issue we didn't cover. Scooby Doo, where are you? Issue number one twenty is out, and there's a couple of hardcover. Well, one hardcover, one trade. Swamp Thing Volume Three: The Parliament of Gears trade paperback, which uh, collects the final third of Rom V's Swamp Thing run, and then we have DC Universe by Dwayne McDuffie hardcover. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie, who tragically died at a very young age, complications from surgery few of his um, projects here. We've got Action Comics 847, The Demon 26 through 29, Impulse 60, JLA Showcase 80-page Giant number one, Batman Gotham Knights 27, Sins of Youth Kid Flash slash Impulse number one, and Firestorm the Nuclear Man 33 through 35. So if you're so inclined, if you're a fan of Dwayne McDuffie, highly encourage you to check that out. If you're not a fan of him, I still highly encourage you to check it out because he was a fantastic writer. Um, so we already know what your book of the week was. I'm going to give my nod to Gotham city year one, number five. Although as we have come to expect with Tom King work, it will rub some people the wrong way, especially those that kind of put the Wayne family up on a pedestal. Every family has skeletons in their closet and Tom King is certainly showing the Waynes are no different. Uh, and I thought the Phil Hester art, as it has been throughout, has been uh, fantastic. Very crime noir in its tone, and it's what I say. What it's what I say a lot. Like I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of um, of Phil when he does superhero work, and I always say I feel like his work is better suited for like crime noir. Well, that's exactly what he's doing here, and he's nailing it. Uh, yes. So, yeah. Uh, anything you want to add about Static? Your uh, yeah, well, Static is my pick of the week. Uh, fantastic work by uh, art and uh, co-writing by Nicholas Straper Ivy and uh, with Vera Ayala. It's very well done, and I, I will give a. I want to give a runner-up shout out to. Um, 
um, the monkey prince, uh, the monkey prince, a runner up for monkey prince. So between static and monkey prince, I was quite impressed and I, I enjoyed Gotham too. Great pick. Those are probably my three. I'd go and I'd probably go static monkey prince and Gotham, uh, year, year one. But, uh, yeah, no, overall, uh, you know, like I said, uh, uh, the majority of comics I thought were slight majority. I wasn't, I wasn't, I thought could be better, but we got a solid good three in there that I, I enjoyed. Uh, when Batman and the Deadly Duo was actually pretty damn good too. So maybe, maybe four. <laughs> yeah. I thought the regular issue of Batman was good too. It's just, yeah, I mean, the yeah. Lazarus, for me, that Lazarus planet really brought it down and, and Poison Ivy again, like I'm sure like, you know, you were saying there's, it's going to sell great because so many people are big fans of the Harley Ivy relationship. And that, and that's great too. That's just not, that's not, I'm not the target audience for that one, you know? So for me, those, those probably were the two that, yeah, I, I won't say they're disappointments because they were exactly what I expected them to be, but they're just, they just weren't for me, but everything else I thought was really solid. But uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Um, don't forget to subscribe to Rocky's channel on YouTube. If you don't already, just head over to YouTube, comic space, boom, exclamation point, ring the notification bell, leave some comments on this video. Uh, and uh, be sure you subscribe so you don't miss any other content. Uh, and if you're not already subscribed to the Comic Source and you want to be sure not to miss any of our audio-only content, just go to wherever you get your podcast from, do a search for the Comic Source, and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode. We appreciate you all joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.